Hey guys, welcome to Rank and Vile, the podcast ranking every horror movie ever made. And this is Ryan. And this is Quincy. How's it going, Quincy? How's it going? Good. Um, so our podcast network, Faustian Nonsense, has started a new podcast called Disc Space. Hell yeah. Um, and it's a game podcast where they have a roundtable panel and they talk about a video game. So in prep for an upcoming episode, I don't think this is a, a major leak, but I purchased Final Fantasy Nine. Ooh. Which I've never played before. <laughs> <laughs> And immediately oh. got stuck in the first level of a JRPG, which you're not supposed to get stuck in. <laughs> I, Honestly, Final Fantasy, uh, my, my trajectory with Final Fantasy has been, I played a lot of FF5 on uh, an SNES emulator uh, when I was a kid, um, and then nothing forever, and then uh, my buddy Foz uh, let me borrow, uh, I think it was Final Fantasy twelve, which was the most fantastically gay iteration of Final Fantasy, where it's just like a group of hunky dudes going on a road trip together, and they like touching on each other like bros, <laughs> and it's, it's just fucking, it's fantastic. Yeah, so what ghoul shit have you been up to? Well, so uh, this, so get this shit, right? So I uh, am working on a short story right now and realized that I don't uh, really, at the time, I didn't really know the process of like, okay, so a person gets murdered, right? And then which building do they go to immediately after it? Where do they get transferred to? What's happening with the body? You know, like, I don't, I don't know what's going on over there. Uh, and so I have been watching footage of, like, tours of morgues uh, to get a, a feel for it. Quincy, I need you to, to YouTube morgue tour and, like, click on the first one. There is a, a video that's, like, 20 minutes long. It is equal parts, like, a pretty in-depth uh, in, sort of uh, exploration of what happens at a morgue. But also, there is a shirtless... A lunatic with uh, a chain necklace cutting, like, a wrestling promo (laughs) at the morgue. Uh, And he's just going about, like, yeah, I'm surrounded by all these bodies. Victims of homicide, suicide. And he's just, like... Uh, Genocide. (laughs) Genocide. Yeah, then Sabu leaps out of a a morgue drawer. Um, And it turns out that apparently this uh, shirtless screaming maniac is a guy called David DeFalco who um, has directed a few movies. He um, directed a really, really bad uh, Last House on the Left ripoff called Chaos, apparently. Um, And he was here at the morgue to promote the movie? And, like, he cut a promo on Roger Ebert for being mean to him (laughs) in in reviewing his movie. Uh, And it's just insane to watch a guy at an actual morgue surrounded by actual dead bodies using them as sort of a, a set for his promo. Um, so if, if you're cool, with, I, this is a weird sentence, but if you're cool with looking at dead bodies in various states of decomposition uh, in order to get to the the, the, the sweaty, screaming, uh, shirtless man at the morgue, like you should, you should definitely check it out. It's completely surreal. So I've been watching several uh, casket matches with The Undertaker. And I mean... He fights very large people, and there's a casket match with Mabel, and Mabel is a big fella as well. But I swear, those caskets are just boxes. They're just very <laughs> large rectangles. They're not proper proportions whatsoever. Yeah, they're, they're, they're more storage matches than casket matches. <laughs> yeah. I think casket matches, I feel like I'm always disappointed by them because like the ultimate outcome of a casket match is that you, you tuck a guy into a little box, and then that's it. Yeah, like, yeah, I did watch a In Your House pay-per-view, and the year escapes me, uh, because it happened in December, and mm-hmm. um, Peacock recommended it to me as a Christmas wrestling episode. Oh, nice. Um, and it did have Triple H uh, in a mud match, and he got thrown into a <laughs> pig pen because he lost. Man. Honestly, the, the In Your House era feels extremely... Because, like, what, that was, like, from, like, new generation to, like, early, early Attitude era? Yeah, yeah. It was it- the mid to late 90s i i think what was incredible about them was that they you know the the titles starting out were like sort of in your house colon beware of dog because the british bulldog was there or whatever and then at a certain point like the the naming conventions kind of got away from them and they were like in your house 
good friends, better enemies. And it's just like, you can tell they were getting conceptual later on. I think it's best that they, they kind of tapered off there at the end. Speaking of doing their best, let's get into the movie uh, we're, we're doing for this week. Quincy, oh. holy shit, this movie. It's so good. We're talking about Alone in the Dark. Holy shit. And so this this movie was uh, New Line Cinema, which up until this point had been more of a distributor than anything. Like, New Line Cinema started with, like, Bob Shea's crazy ass, like, selling copies of Reefer Madness and Pink Flamingos out the back of his weird car. Um, and this was the first movie that New Line actually, like, produced themselves before distributing. Um it looks like 1982. Oh, it does. And what I really like about this movie right off the bat is it's not a typical slasher. It is oh, no. post um, 70s slashers like uh, Black Christmas, uh, but pre um, New Line's Nightmare on Elm Street and mid Friday the 13th. So it's got this really fascinating timepiece it's also got punks in it so oh, yeah. i love a movie with punk exploitation mm-hmm. big fan yeah a, a punk band called the sick fucks um s-i-c and... did you did you get that oh yeah yeah <laughs> s-i-c Appar- apparently the 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 name in the script for the uh, the punk band that they wanted was uh nicky nothing uh and and the hives so it's supposed to be nicky nothing and the hives but then uh the actual band the sick fucks got the gig and they were like Actually, that's a pretty good band name. Let's just, let's stay with that. You're the sick fucks. Okay. Yeah. Eagle-eyed viewers can actually spot a Nicky Nothings poster in the lobby of the club. Uh, but they just, they just were like, ah, that's the opening act. We'll just <laughs> pretend. They also, for this punk scene, so we're getting ahead. We'll, we'll backtrack. Mm-hmm. But they go see a punk show. And the sick fucks play their actual song, Chop Up Your Mother. Uh, which includes prop, axes, and meat cleavers. Um, and by the way, these are the uh, women who uh, are um, in charge of a very influential brand in my life, Manic Panic. Hell yeah. They honestly, uh, which first of all, Chop Up Your Mother is a fucking bop, I feel. Chop, like, chop, chop your mother. <laughs> chop up your mother. Um, and it's it's great to watch uh, a hol- like you know New Line Cinema, which at this point I feel really good about the the punk exploitation because they were themselves a bit of a ragtag DIY outfit. Uh, yeah. At this time, you know this is this is a long time before uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, and now so this was produced by Robert Shade, directed and written. Uh, by Jack Shoulder, who uh, also directed A Night on Elm Street 2, colon, the gay one. <laughs> um, and you can, like, I don't know, like, there's, this This is, uh, okay, so the plot, let, let's get into, let's get into what, what, what happens in this very, very insane okay, movie. Okay, so this movie starts with one of the most banana pie, banana cream pie ass openings ever. It is the... Martin Landau walks into a diner and um, Donald Pleasance uh, emerges with a giant meat cleaver and tries to cut him in half, but only after serving him a live fish. Yeah, this is uh, this is like a lost scene from the Double R Diner in Twin Peaks. Yeah, because, you know, Martin Landau uh, walks in and they call him Preacher, you know, and, and he... Sits at the counter, it starts raining inside the diner, Donald Pleasance is, like, quoting scripture before, like, he, like, this guy gets hung upside down by chains that snake out of nowhere, and then he almost get he gets, like, bisected uh, by uh, Donald Pleasance, who's, by the way, wearing a jaunty little diner worker cap. Yes, a jaunty little cap. And then he wakes up in a, uh, Martin Landau wakes up in a mental institution, and then the movie starts. Yeah, a mental uh, institution that also uh, has Jack... Now, this movie has Donald Pleasance, Jack Palance, and Martin Landau in the same goddamned movie. In the same movie, on screen at the same time. Wonderful. It's... You know the band Nitro... Uh, where it was like, we need somebody who can shatter light bulbs by holding a high note. We need uh, an ambidextrous guitar player with a four-necked guitar. We need to play as fast as possible, like as overboard as you can possibly go. That, to me, is having Martin Landau, Donald By God Pleasance, and Jack Palance all on screen together. 
Yeah, so what we find out is that Martin Landau is a um, patient in a mental institution, and a new doctor has come, uh, has been hired to come see them, uh, Dr. Dan Potter, who is Dwight Schultz from the A-Team fame. Yeah, and he's just a nebbish little fella. Like, he is, you know, he's got he's hair the color of a dust bunny, huge Coke bottle glasses. What I think it is, they needed a character to be as unassuming and discreet uh, as a character as possible, because you, we've already got the holy trinity of Pleasance, Palance, and Landau on screen. We need a blank cipher for the audience to have a place to, to watch this from. Yeah, so he shows up, uh, and he says, hello, I need to speak to Dr. Leah Bain, Dr. Pleasant. Uh, Donald Pleasance, and who is the receptionist? Uh, it's Lynn Shay from the Insidious franchise. Yeah, yeah, she plays the uh, sort of the medium in those movies. Who works with like the ghost busting team? She honestly, uh, obviously, she's the sister of Bob Shay. She was the teacher in A Nightmare on Elm Street when uh, Nancy has a freak out. Like, I am always delighted to see Lynn Shay popping up and stuff. Yeah, so what we learn is Lin Shay is not actually the receptionist. She just thinks she's a receptionist. Because Leo Bain has this cuckoo idea that a mental institution should be where, I guess, the patients, like, to use the, the cliche, the patients run the asylum. Like, they they don't need to be locked up. They need to just live their lives and... Uh, just in, are indulged in their delusions. So you got a guy who's playing a invisible violin, and Leo Bain is like, "Oh, is that your Stradivarius?" And you know, you have all these other people that are just uh, carrying on like this. So, so we know that this is not your typical um, uh, <laughs> asylum. And also, uh, one thing that permeates the special features of this. Um, Scream Factory Blu-ray that I have Ooh, nice. is how many people were deeply offended by the portrayal of mental illness in this movie. It oh, is, yeah, it does not age well. <laughs> it certainly fucking does not. Uh, now the thing about it is, uh, I mean, uh, horror has had a uh, an embattled relationship with uh, mental illness and people with mental illness. Um, I, I honestly, the thing about the psych ward in this that's incredible to me is that. Uh, so Donald Pleasance's character, um, the IMDb trivia page uh, tells me that the um, the character uh, that he plays was inspired by the writings of R.D. Lang, um, who was a, a guy who theorized that, quote, psychotics were actually people having difficulty adapting to an already psychotic world. The character of Dr. Leo Bain was supposed to be something of a parody of Lang. Um, it, it doesn't quite stick the landing. No, but I do like that, spoiler, um, he does get his comeuppance because he goes to speak to Jack Palance and try to reason with him and expects things to turn out just fine, but is then murdered. There's also a scene early on in the movie where Martin Landau asks Dr. Potts for matches, and he goes, no, you can't have matches, you're in a you're locked up in this asylum. And he's like, fine, I'll just go ask Dr. Bain. And then the next scene, he has lit his jacket on fire and he's trying to <laughs> set fires everywhere. It's it's incredible also. Because I, now, this is uh, not to, you know, navel gaze too much. I do think uh, this being in 1982 uh, and, you know, Ronald Reagan, who uh, is one of history's greatest monsters and decided that, like, actually all this... Uh, infrastructure for taking care of people dealing with mental illness and disability. What if fuck them? Let's just dump everybody out into the street and, you know, give them a slap on the ass and be like, well, you know, have fun bootstrapping your way out of the margins. Yeah, um, because because a lot of this movie really is like the asylum patients escape and the world is weirder than it was in their already bizarre asylum. Yeah. Now, it, this... Uh, there's the psych ward specifically holding, it's kind of like Con Air, uh, a big part of this movie, where you've got these characters, okay, uh, uh, among the, the, the many um, inpatients uh, at the, the psych ward, there's like a special ward that holds uh, Jack Palance and then a guy called the Bleeder, 
who uh, always hides his face uh, and, uh, you know, apparently was a serial killer who strangled people. And when he did that, he would get a nosebleed. You've got um, a 400-pound child molester. You've got uh, the preacher played by Martin Landau who's super into fire. Like, it's it's literally just like the Sinister Six. Like, you're just describing, like... But then you also have Jack Palance's character who is clearly suffering from post-traumatic stress. Yeah, he was an army guy um, who is, you know, sort of trying to piece everything back together. And he, I think this movie is trying to do something with like, you know, it's not just the mentally ill who want to kill people. Like the idea that this guy is actually totally uh, sort of together in a way. But I mean, he does he does have schizophrenia, I think. And yeah. the movie is not great about its portrayal of that. So, so what has happened is Jack Palance's character believes that Dr. Potter killed their original doctor, when in it, the real case is the doctor got a job somewhere else and left, which, like, again, you know, I don't know if they just say, uh, see you later, and just, like, tap hands <laughs> out the door. I think there's, like, some, <laughs> some closure there. But um, he's convinced that Dr. Potter is this is going to kill them. So then really the motivation to kill Dr. Potter is this like self-defense sort of, uh, twisted, um, logic. Yeah. I mean, it's very plot devicey where it's like, they're killing him because they've decided that he killed the previous doctor. I don't know. They just decided, fuck you. <laughs> like they don't, they don't do too much to, you know, like it's, it's it sort of, it works perfectly fine. Um, the, the 400 pound child molester, uh, gets, uh, Dan's address by stealing some of his mail. Um, also going back to the, the, the slippery rules of the psych ward, you know, uh, Do Donald Pleasance is sort of like pulling an Emperor Norton with a lot of them where it's just like, oh, it's not harming anyone for them to have these delusions. But then... The um the con air uh, portion of the psych ward has electrified doors, and there is a power outage, and all of a sudden we're left alone in the dark. <laughs> there is a power outage that lasts like three days in this, and, and apparently it's because there's a nuclear power plant, and they're trying to say something about nuclear energy in this movie as well. <laughs> Yeah, that's in the mix. We gotta we gotta have a statement about nuclear power. Like this movie, I love so much that like this is ten pounds of ideas in a five pound bag. Oh, it's so great. Like it's it's genuinely incredible. Um we've you know, we're we're introduced to Dan's family. Um his his wife, uh Nell fucking rules. I really love Nell. She, she you know, she it's kind of the poltergeist thing of like she smokes weed and she's kind of on top of things and she's you know, I like that she actually gets to do stuff in this movie and isn't just like, well, and here's Dan's wife, so there's that, I guess. Yeah, and then their precocious child, Lila. Uh, and then also Dr. Potter's sister comes to visit. Yeah, and her sister, holy shit, let's talk about her. Uh, she, I feel like she has an outfit labeled Manic Episode. Um, where it's just like, she's got the big side ponytail, she's wearing, like, she looks like uh, she got the color scheme from the scene from Batman where the Joker is painting the museum. Like, she is just more 80s than 80s in 1982. So really, she's, she was a trailblazer. She's also wearing a fishnet shirt when they go to the punk show, and a, uh, like, Hall & Oates-ass blazer with the sleeves pulled up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. She, um, I think, uh, in the movie, at the start of it, she's having recovered, uh, she's recovering from having had a nervous breakdown, I think. Again, they're very hand-wavy and just like, you know, mental illness. Yeah, it's like this movie, you know, this being pre-Wikipedia, they couldn't, the makers of this movie couldn't just go online and look up the Wikipedia page for mental illness. Uh, but it's like they heard the term once and went, oh, mental illness, like when you're a crazy guy. Yeah, let's just do that. And it's, it, yeah, uh, a very a very loose grasp on the idea of mental illness in this movie. Yeah, so she, she stays and they go to this punk show. And uh, mid-punk show, the power goes out. And yeah. uh, this is where the lead singer of the Sick Fucks had to improvise lines. Is just like, there's no fucking power. There's no fucking music. 
<laughs> that guy is amazing. He sounds like Barney Gumble from The Simpsons. <laughs> hey, what the fuck? They turned all the power off. Like, it's... Uh, this band is also... Uh, there's a lot of people in the sick fucks. There's so many people in this band. It's like the Wu-Tang Clan. It's like <laughs> five guitar players, three singers, Man. two drummers. You know what? Other punk bands, you know, they're doing the four chords and the truth thing. They're doing the Ramones thing. Fuck that. We're going Rocky Horror. Like, we're getting <laughs> as many weird fucking people on stage as possible for this punk band. Um, and it's also, you know, it does feature the, the tamest slam dancing uh, in all of exploitation. So part of that is because they didn't have audio. Yeah. So those like, people were dancing in silence. <laughs> yeah, so just total silence while the band mimes the song uh, Chop Up Your Mother. That, which is just a real bummer that they, they couldn't just, like, let it, let it fly with, a, so with the live music. It's unclear where they got like whose fault it was because in an interview the sick fucks themselves are like yeah our manager brought the wrong tape uh and other there's other accounts of like well they just couldn't get it to play or things like that but yeah surprisingly they're good performers and and they pull it off they really do. It, although it reminds me of the fact that um, when they were filming Purple Rain, um, apparently when they were doing Darling Nikki, uh, that was supposed to be the point in the movie at which like the kid is like, you're spiraling out, man. Like you're alienating your bandmates and doing all this like super conceptual shit that no one wants to listen to. But the problem is that it's the song Darling Nikki, which fucking rips. Yeah, it's the <laughs> most accessible song. Just deep, just a great fucking song. And, you know, he's playing it live. They had to keep re-recording it because people wouldn't stop losing their shit cheering at, <laughs> at the club like, so, no stop it's not no, supposed no. to be a good song pretend that this song doesn't fucking own like you need to you need to look disapproving of darling nikki oh um, that's another thing is the lead singer of the sick fucks in the interview on this blu-ray is like yeah we were also doing whippets between takes <laughs> the wild fucking west 1982 <laughs> it's just it's incredible um the now uh, the power goes out and of course um, the, uh, the con, the con air psych ward, uh, doors are, uh, they've lost their power. And so the, uh, the 400 pound child molester and Martin Landau, um, you know, they, they kill, uh, one of the orderlies, um, pretty brutally. Actually, apparently the 400 pound, uh, child molester is played by an actor who was an honest to God power lifter. Yeah. Um, he was also an opera singer. No shit. Mm -hmm. He had oh. a very good career despite being in a very reprehensible role in this movie yeah yeah man that guy really maxed out his points uh, there erlen von lith that's that's incredible and he just like hucks this uh orderly up into the air and breaks his back like fucking bane um it's it's brutal like the effects in this i think tom savini did the effects for this right yeah he did the um the corpse effect at the end of the movie so it, it's got some pretty good uh special effects in it yeah so uh the uh, later on, all of the crossbow effects are pretty cool. They're extremely cool. Now this, uh, so yeah, so they kill they kill the orderly, and then all of a sudden, you know, the uh, the gang is the boys are back in town, um, and we've got uh, the Con Air team. Uh, sort of for whatever reason, um, the blackout happens, and naturally, what follows a blackout is a giant fucking riot. Yeah. Uh, looting so it's <laughs> and it's supposed to be this whole if you think about it we're the ones who should be in the the asylum ah. uh, because they go to a store and of course just load up on knives and crossbows and chainsaws and bullshit and uh they fucking kill a man in the parking lot and everyone's like, okay, <laughs> and just run around him and continue leading. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of the, uh, it's it's almost like a parody of a parody with Donald Pleasant's, you know, a lot of his thing as Dr. Bane is being like, yes, they're crazy, but aren't we all crazy? And if, if you think about it, don't we live in a society? And it's just like, uh, complete bedlam. My favorite thing about this, though, is that um, the guy who does the murdering in the parking lot is um, the, the bleeder who has... And we have to point this out here. Um, but they, they, they've all looted a store and gotten, you know, picked up whatever weapon they're going to be using in this motion picture. Uh, and he puts on a hockey mask. Um, and this is the same year as Friday the 13th Part 3. When... Yeah, so there's no fucking way that one is copying the other because they were both in production at the same time. Right. And so it was two people that had the same idea. 
Um, it it looks pretty dope. This guy in the what, what I love about it is that this hockey mask looks like uh, when you get a cheap Halloween costume of Jason Voorhees now. Yeah, it's, it's one of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what I love about this is that he grabs like a garden claw, and uh, there's just uh, some some random jamoke in the parking lot, and he just like slashes this guy's th- whole throat out with the thing and the guy bleeds out and at this point the other con air in uh impatience kind of look at him like dude what the fuck like, <laughs> <laughs> and they go their separate ways they're like go away we you can't get in the van with us <laughs> i love it so much that it's like them going like whoa whoa like you made it weird killing a guy with a garden claw um, and he just kind of fucks off on his own. And then they uh, commit vehicular homicide on a mailman? Yeah, so there's a, a bike messenger who's bicycling through the neighborhood. And in a very, like, terror comes the suburbia way, they tail this guy. And he's desperately waving them. He's like, go around. Please go around me. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of um, the Toxic Avenger a little bit with the, the kid on the bike that they that they kill with the car. Yeah, <laughs> like, so they run over uh, this guy because Martin Landau wants his outfit. Yeah, specifically his hat. Uh, although he, what he he wants to dress up as a bike messenger to more effectively infiltrate Dan's house. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so he he disguises himself as a bike messenger, shows up to Dan's house. And says, I've got a letter for Dr. Potter. And Dan's not there. It's just his wife. And she says, he's not in. And he goes, well, this has to be given to him specifically. And she's like, no, that's not how mail works. Just hand it to me. And he's like, I'll come back later. And he just like creeps back down the steps. Yeah, he really oozes. Like Martin Landau, uh one of the great, like, upsetting, like, off putting actors, I feel. His mouth is roughly three feet wide. Yeah. It's he, it's like a um the width of an envelope. It's wild yeah with nine thousand teeth like it's just he's yeah he he oozes away and at this point the the movie has been both a sort of one flew over the cuckoo's nest riff and now uh suddenly it, it turns into a siege movie yeah it's straw dogs it's yeah. wild um, it's, yeah so then for a extended period we don't see the um escapees it's just the house yeah, yeah. And so uh, the 400-pound uh, child molester, um, spoiler here, uh, no child molestation happens on or off screen in this movie, which I was very fucking grateful for. Yeah, but it's uh, right up to the line, which I am very upset about. <laughs> yeah! Uh, well, the incredible thing about this, okay, so uh, their precocious daughter Lila is at home, and as you might imagine, if you're, you know, it's like Chekhov's 400-pound child molester, um... He shows up to the house and he is, like, trying to get her to go upstairs for, you know, purposes. She just continually owns this guy, which I think is great. (laughs) Yeah, she thinks he's the babysitter, so she's just, like, ragging on him for being a babysitter. Here's the upsetting thing. Jack Shoulder's direction allegedly was pretend that you're on a first date and she's making you nervous. Oh, Christ, Jack. Why? That's well. That explains why my insides curdled with the discomfort for the duration of that scene, like Um, a gallon of weak old milk. (laughs) Yeah, which she drinks in during the scene. She just straight up drinks a glass of milk. I don't know why the milk was upsetting to me. Uh, Lactose intolerance, maybe. Maybe. Um, But so it it doesn't happen, and I'm, I'm I'm very fucking glad for that. Also because. I mean, this being New Line Cinema, Bob Shea having come from the exploitation film world, I think it was reasonable to expect that something fucking horrifying was going to happen there. But Oh, we... yeah. I mean, when I think exploitation, I think of things like Thriller. So, of course, it's going to be <laughs> the Swedish movie, not the music video. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, although, you know, there, I'm sure there is a... a, a an exploitation cut of thriller where it just features like one of the zombies dying horribly. Um, yeah. Now the, the nuclear protest, uh, subplot doesn't make a lot of sense, but it does introduce us to, um, Ronald, who is uh, a big hunky fella that, um, they all get arrested at the protest, which by the way, is this movie trying to say something about like police 
brutality or well, also the um poster that she paints is like get rid of nuclear power before it gets, gets rid of us and it's just piles of bloody bones yeah it's yeah it's it's honestly pretty cool uh and they all get arrested at the protest and uh ronald uh got punched in the face by the cops at the protest and so he's got like a like a bloody nose during this yeah, movie yeah yeah um, and so they, he's, he, you know, Ronald joined the party, I guess. Like he's, he's part of this now. Yeah. Now we're also, uh, the, uh, other babysitter, um, or she's not a babysitter. We get a really long, uncomfortable, uh, sex scene in this movie. Uh, who's, who's the blonde lady? Bunky actually is the real babysitter. She shows up to watch the kids because... Uh, Dan's got to go bust his wife and sister out of jail. <laughs> He's got to right. post bond. So they're like, Bunky, please come over and watch the kid. And of course, because this is New Line Cinema and it's the 80s, Bunky calls her boyfriend over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You actually, if you were a babysitter, you had to be accompanied by a horny meathead boyfriend. Um, while on the job, there, there was there were it, it was like a union job. Like you had to <laughs> you had to supply that role. Now this sex scene, you know, he's full on. We're sucking boob in this movie. Um, it goes on for a while, and then mercifully, the guy gets. Um, you know, she's she's kind of freaked out because I think she hears noises. In yeah, the house. yeah. It's it's again very of its era. She hears noises. She's like, you got to go check this out, and then a knife uh, pops through the mattress. <laughs> oh, it pops through the mattress right after um, he, he goes and looks at the door and he's like, whatever, there's nothing there. And then, and, and I remember his name is Billy because he, um, an arm shoots out from under the bed and drags him under the bed and, you know, where he's, you know, murdered. And she's leaning over the bed yelling, Billy? Uh, in like horror movie voice. <laughs> Hello, Billy? Um, and at this point, it, honestly, the sequence was pretty dope with the knife coming up through the bed. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, so she's uh, disposed of and hidden, uh, which is important because uh, this movie follows one of my favorite tropes, which is here are all of your friends that I've dispatched gathered together. <laughs> Yeah, uh, slashers are are just theater kids uh, in a lot of ways, where they're just like, here, I made this uh, giant uh, montage of bodies for you to for you to a, find a tableau of corpses. <laughs> it's like a shoebox diorama of all of your dead friends. Um, and now, apparently, um, the actor who plays the four hundred pound uh, power lifter slash opera singer, um, he literally did lift her up by her neck. Yeah, she was a contortionist, so she's like, I'm double-jointed, just do it. Power stuff. Damn. I, that's actually great, because I was worried about it, because I'm like, okay, so I know he's, like, shoot, lifting her up with one hand by her neck. Uh, is, is she okay? And apparently she is. Yeah, she's into it. She's like, you know, do the job, let's do it. <laughs> they both agreed to work stiff, like, all right, man, <laughs> let's just fucking, let's just uh, do business. Um, now at this point, uh, the, there's, there's a detective who's also part of this movie. Yeah. And they just invite him over for dinner and we have this really lovely dinner scene and the movie yeah. ends. Just kidding. Everyone fucking dies. <laughs> yeah. Detective Barnett, he kind of reminds me of the cop from Fright Night who Charlie Brewster calls to be like, my neighbor's a vampire. And then the guy's like, get the fuck out of my face, kid. <laughs> um, and it's kind of amazing that it's just like, all right. All of the people who have been added to the party at this point just sit down for a big dinner. Um, so you've got like Hunky uh, Hunky Dan from the jail and Detective Barnett, and they're all just like sitting around uh, eating dinner by candlelight because the power has been out for roughly a week at this point. Yeah, and um, then we start getting uh, rustling outside. Yeah, and it's at this point that it turns into fucking Assault on Precinct 13, uh, where, you know, you've got Detective Barnett goes outside to, you know, to check on stuff and make sure that no, you know, nobody's pulling any shenanigans in the and dark. sadly, because he's an African-American, immediately dies. Yeah, instantly. Um, he, his death, I actually, I kind of appreciate how much this movie, like, made that, like, made me feel that death. Yeah, it's it's got a lot of pathos. It's very long and agonizing, partially because he shot with a crossbow and pinned to a tree 
off of the ground so his feet are dangling while he's dying yeah like he's you know his feet are grinding in the dirt and just sort of like flailing um i'm normally not a big fan of um arrow deaths in movies uh, in slasher movies or like harpoon deaths speaking of friday the 13th part three the the harpoon death in that um but this one i think this is the high score for me with like yeah projectile impalements and because they're in the helm and this is like a very big like victorian open floor house Mm -hmm. so they can't really hide because they're shooting arrows through all the windows uh and they just have to like hunker down yeah and you know they can't go out there to you know save the guy I, i it's also um it made me realize what is it with affluent white families with huge windows and like glass walls in in houses and movies like i don't understand this compulsion to have people be able to just look in at your house anytime they want yeah um i don't quite get it either maybe there's some metaphor here about people in glass houses but um <laughs> You know what they say about glass houses? Don't fucking do it. Um, they, yeah, yeah. And so they, uh, at this point, um, the 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 Conair gang is like surrounding the house, um, and of course, at this point, by horror movie rules, you know, sort of they're going to do battle one by one with uh, with the entire rogues gallery. Yeah. So in order to solve it, they call Leo Bain and they're like, "Get down here and fucking fix this." And Leo Bain is just in his office packing a pipe but it is a culturally appropriated native american peace pipe that he's packing <laughs> fucking of course because it of is. course it is <laughs> this the f- fucking guy his um, office his... is filled with every possible cliche for a like quack psychologist he's got like tribal masks and like taxidermy (laughs) it looks like ben stein's office from the mask like it's just so many fucking masks all over the goddamn walls so he shows up and he's like my friends let's talk about this you know we're having a crazy time aren't we but it's time to go home and they finally reveal themselves and he's like oh good i'm glad that you're you know listening to reason and they're like no and they they mark him (laughs) I love the 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 photo negative of Dr. Loomis here because in you know in as Dr. Loomis Donald Pleasance is like no we must kill him and keep him in the mental hospital and it's it, it's awful and then here he's like I mean they're fine right like they're it'll work <laughs> out <laughs> <laughs> They're coming to your town sheriff it'll be chill I don't know <laughs> maybe maybe you'll have a good maybe you'll learn something about each I don't know cool vibes um, only <laughs> Um, but Martin Landau, uh, just chops his fucking ear off instantly. And so he, he gets into the car, um, holding his ear and he tries reasoning with, uh, Martin Landau, who's the, the arsonist preacher. And he's like, trying, he's bringing up the, the 10 commandments, you know, and he's like, uh, a little thing called thou shalt not kill. And Martin Landau looks at him and he's just like, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And it's like, ah, damn it, you read the whole Bible. Fuck. (laughs) Darn, curse my limited knowledge of... Gah, classic. Um, And it's, yeah, uh, so Jack Jack Palance is uh, back in full effect. And he also has a gun in this movie. So he's, he's the one with the crossbow, but he also has like a handgun as well. Which I'm, I don't know. I don't, I'm not crazy about... I don't feel like a gun should be in the mix here. Yeah, it does feel anti-slasher. Um, you know, there's all of the, like, phallocentrism of the knife and puncturing the body and all that. And guns just seem kind of cheap. Yeah, which I am I am a fan of the subversion of this in the movie Terrifier, where Art the Cloud just pulls a gun at one point and shoots her in a shock moment, like... I feel like that feels subversive to me because guns are not a satisfying part of horror movies usually. Yeah, yeah. But this one, it's used to menace in a very, like... Yeah, he's not shooting at stuff a lot. Like, he's just kind of, you know, he's got the gun as a as an intimidation thing. Yeah, he just waves it around. He's, he's mostly using the crossbow. Now, here's the biggest spoiler of the movie, and I kind of want to leave it unspoiled. Okay. 
What do I guess you think? Uh, let's, you know what? Let's 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 go ahead and uh, you know it's 1982. Let's 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 spoil this. Okay. So uh, remember that hunky guy that's helping the family? Hunky Dan, yeah. He's he's the bleeder. Yeah, yeah. This whole time, um, which should have been like the foreshadowing of like, oh, his nose got super fucked up at this uh, nuclear power rally. Yeah, he was such a bloody mess, and we find this out because. Um, Potter's sister is just drenched in blood. He, she's like holding him, and he's just like gushing blood out of his nose. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that he uh, gets a nosebleed like an anime protagonist who gets uh, uncomfortably horny. Fucking Master he... Roshi ass. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's now Hunky Den. Uh, this reveal, which I both think is the dumbest goddamn thing in the world, and also love how they pulled this off, which is that the bleeder doesn't want people to look at his face. Um, he's always like, you know, even before he gets the hockey mask, he's like obscuring it with his hand and you know through camera tricks, and he just doesn't want anybody to look at his face for purposes. And then the reason is that it's because it's Hunky Den. Yeah, it's it's kind of dumb when you think about how. As soon as he's Hunky Dan, he has no problem with anyone looking at his face. <laughs> and it's it's literally because, well, we've got to show the reveal at the end of the movie, and we have no clue how to do it any other way. <laughs> no one cared who I was until I took off the mask, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, he's... I mean, this this actor is pretty fine as far as, like, hunky love interests in, in movies who are troubled go, I guess. Um but he, you know, so he, like, pleads with uh, Jack Palance not to kill the family. What, how, how does, how does this happen? Like, uh, Hunky Dan stabs the shit out of Martin Landau? Yeah, but then, um, but then we get this part where they get yeeted into the basement. Because we find out they're, cl- <laughs> they're climbing up the basement steps. So, like, they get thrown in the basement. The basement gets caught on fire. And um, Dan, this is the part of the movie, which is a very 70s feel, is like, okay, I'm going to kill the killers. I'm going to become, I'm going to throw away my liberal arts education and just be a murderer (laughs) now. I don't know why that's such a, like, a thing for, like, 70s slashers and horror especially. And I don't know why, as a liberally educated... Adult, I love it so much. I also love, I you know the uh, I feel like the um, Hills Have Eyes remake it, it did a pretty good job with this, where it's like ah, this hipster fuck needs to you know what I think it is is it's like the seventies response to like the fear of the liberated man sort of thing, where it's like ah, he's gonna take his wife's name and wear a, a leisure suit, and he's gonna <laughs> you know, read books like Free to Be You and Me, and he's not even gonna want to kill a guy with a garden trowel. Um, and I, I, I don't know, like, do you think that that's the horror genre being, like, you know, this is, uh, you know, that, you know, when the, the chips are down and your back is against the wall, it doesn't matter how much Steely Dan you listen to, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna stab a man and you're gonna be glad to do it. I don't know, I think it's just part of that, like, you want the you want to root for the underdog, and yeah. I think it's one of those moments where you're like, this guy can't cut it, he's not going to do it, and then he does it. Because in real life, that's abhorrent, and I don't want it. But in my fiction, I'm okay with it. It's it's very complicated. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Actually, I've been uh, fucking this up the entire time. Hunky Dan is not um, Hunky Dan is the protagonist. Yeah, um, the the Nemish fella. Um, excuse me, no, no, hunky hunky guy is a, a Ronald. Hunky Ronald is the is the one who. Yeah. Anyway, so what's incredible here is that uh, the power comes back on suddenly, and um, the doctor uh, that just decided to fuck off to Philadelphia, um, that all of the inmates are convinced Dan killed and took his place. He's on he's on the TV just being like, yeah, I heard about that uh, the breakout over at the psych ward, and boy, that that's not good. You know, that's not what you want. It's very shoehorned, but it also <laughs> kind of works in a great way. Oh, I mean, it's in the movie Alone in the Dark. You know, like it, I, I think it works perfectly. Um, I love how they have a TV in their kitchen because they're that middle that upper middle class, and the doctor just happens to be on to that moment. And Jack Palance's character happens to see it and then goes, fuck this, and breaks the TV and tries to kill them anyway. 
<laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Like, it's not like, no, what have I done? You know, like earlier, you kind of get the bit with Dan talking about the fact that like, look, this guy is so, del- you know, it- it's sort of like Infowars shit where he's like, this guy is so far gone in his delusions that I could produce uh, Dr. Merton uh, on the phone telling him that like, actually, I'm I'm alive and well and living in Philadelphia. And, you know, Jack Palance would think that this was just, you know, an elaborate ruse and that would just reinforce his belief. Which, again, there's something to be said, like, in a thoughtful way there. But not in but this movie. This is, but not in this movie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, this this movie is gesturing at a lot of really cool ideas that it's like, but this is the movie Alone in the Dark. I'm not, we're not doing that. Um, but so Frank, uh, what, he's defeated and he uh, fucks off into the night, I think? And then goes back to the punk club? Because he's just wandering around and they're having a show. And then we get the most bizarre end scene um, that I've seen in a while. Yeah, so he uh, still has the gun. Um, and he, uh, there's like a, a drunk lady who like rolls up on him at the punk club and he points out a gun, or he pulls out a gun and points it, like holds it to her head and because she's she's a drunk like punk at a club, she just starts laughing because she thinks that he's fucking with her. Yeah, and... it's so punk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is dude. You know what, fella? You're like the fourth person who's pulled a gun on her tonight at this club. Like at this point, it's <laughs> it's like a running bit. Uh, and then so she starts laughing, and then so he starts laughing too. And yeah, and she has this whole thing like. I've seen you. I've I've been watching you and I've been waiting for you to come back. I saw you Tuesday and I wanted you here again and like it's so pink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if this is the movie trying to be like, you know, put a put an exclamation point on like if you think about it, suburbia is the real mental institution. I I especially love that in an interview Snooky from the sick fox was like that actress was practicing her lines the whole day and was like what's a punk thing to say and they're like fuck off and she's like i can't say that what's another punk thing to say and they're like we don't know we're we're a culture not a costume yeah yeah like what you think this is a way of life actually a really punk thing would be like do you want to get involved in our local co-op or like he's like hey i got a zine like i don't alternatively would you like some whippets Yeah, and then so the movie just kind of ends. Um, it's almost like that uh, moment at the end of uh, Alan Moore's like killing joke, where it's Batman and Joker both sharing a laugh while the cops pull up. Yeah, um, is the the drunk lady and the and you know Jack Palance with a gun. So where do you want to put this on our list? <sighs> now that's a hell of a question, right? Um, <laughs> is this okay? So I was utterly delighted by everything in this movie, aside from the child molester uh, scene with the tension. Um, the, I really, really liked this movie. I do, too. Um, I, I got to see this at 12 Hours of Terror at the Belcourt in Nashville, so I got to see it on the big screen. Oh, shit, and, um, yes. It, it's a real hoot to, to get to see that way. Congratulations. Um, now, is this movie, with the song Chop Up Your Mother... Mm-hmm. Better or worse than Maniac Cop 2 with its own tie-in rap. What number is Maniac Cop 2 at? 262. Okay. So tie-in Okay, really this is uh bring uh, this is tie uh, tie-in rap versus punk exploitation. Uh, both of which are very dear to our our hearts, I think. Yes. <laughs> um yeah, they're listen, two sides of the same coin when it comes to like horror movie uh, creators being like what are what are the kids doing now? Like I don't know what it would be now in a in a movie if it would just be like death grips references or I don't yeah I mean I'm 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 an old so one hundred gex I don't know <laughs> yeah I don't I don't know um I feel like I want to give the edge to this um although okay all right I I hate to navel gaze uh, but if we're going with like what the movie is trying to say there's a bit at the end of Maniac Cop 2 which is you know they they uh, Cordell is vanquished and one of the cops uh you know sort of mentions like there's a little bit of Cordell inside of every cop in a way that's like meant to be complimentary to cops that the titular maniac cop is inside of every cop and on the level that like meh, they want vengeance for wrongdoing or something and it's like trying to say something but i think it totally fumbles the bag 
in a way that this movie doesn't say anything about the many concepts it is juggling. It just kind of goes, ah, look at that. Mental illness. What are you going to (laughs) do? Above Maniac Cop 2 is society, which kind of goes, rich people, they suck. (laughs) In a very similar sort of mental illness. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Whoa, Night of the Hunter is at number 260? How did that happen? That movie's incredible. (laughs) holy shit sometimes i look at our list and i want to like go back in time and be like you how did this happen explain (laughs) um but yeah i think uh this movie is definitely now the society is a lot of fun but there's a similar kind of there is nobody steering this goddamn thing sensibility that i really appreciate that's present in both society and uh alone in the dark um but purely in terms of, like, time capsule, it is 1982, by God, and, you know, New Line Cinema coming out of their uh, cage, and they've been feeling just fine. Um, I feel like I want to give the edge to Alone in the Dark. Yeah, I, I think um, Alone in the Dark would go good right underneath Night of the Hunter, but above society. I think so, too, because Night of the Hunter, there is somebody staring that thing, and I feel like it is... A, a great movie to me in in the way that Alone in the Dark is just, I mean, first of all, I'm going to rewatch this movie a lot uh, because it's incredible, but I feel like, yeah, Night of the Hunter is more of a landmark for horror in a way that this is just a, a sort of forgotten gem. Yeah, it's a, it's a um, really interesting curio, uh, but Night of the Hunter is like a, a Stone Cold classic. Yeah, completely. So I feel really good about that. So coming in uh, at our new number 261, above Society and below Night of the Hunter, is Alone in the Dark uh, from 1982, directed by uh, Jack Shoulder. Uh, And guys, it is on YouTube uh, for free in its entirety if you you YouTube Alone in the Dark 1982. Uh, Please give it a watch if you haven't seen it. It, It is... Utterly unhinged, and I had I had a fucking great time watching it. And hey, Christmas is coming up. Maybe get the Blu-ray from Scream uh, Factory because it's very good. <laughs> Scream Factory is doing the Lord's work. I feel like they they're they're very very good. Um, Quincy, where can uh, listeners find us on the internet? Listeners can find us on social media at uh, Rank and Vilecast on Twitter and at Rank and Vile on Instagram. They can also check out our podcast networks page, FaustianNonsense.com, to find a link to our uh, episode feed, a link to the Discord. Uh, there should also be a uh, version of the list so you can actually see the list and get angry at how <laughs> high up Night of the Hunter is. <laughs> Yeah, we are currently at uh, sitting pretty at 544 pieces of media um, that we have uh, now talked about and reviewed for this podcast. Um, guys, we, we we love the community. We uh, we love talking to you. Thank you for hanging out in the Discord and tweeting at us. And uh, we, we also have a letterbox, by the way, if you want to read our uh, very sh- uh, short shit posts about uh, movies. Um, but yeah, uh, hit us up uh, on the internet. If you have a movie that you think, you know, may- should be on our radar or that we, you know, you maybe want us to talk about, um, you're going to want to send that request over to rankandvilecast at gmail.com or... You know, if you just want to say hi, uh, drop us drop us a line over there. Um, but yeah, bar, uh, that is about all I've got. You got anything else? Stay spooky. Later, folks. <laughs>